Welcome back and thank you for being here, reading and listening along to A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. We will be reading two more chapters today, starting with chapter 36. Johnny died three days later. He had gone to bed that night and Katie had sat by him until he went to sleep. Later, she slept with Francie so as not to disturb him. Sometime during the night, he got up, dressed quietly, and went out. He did not return the next night. The second day, they began looking for him. They looked all over, but Johnny hadn't been in any of his accustomed haunts for a week. The second night, McShane came over to take Katie to a nearby Catholic hospital. On the way over, he told her, as gently as he could, about Johnny. Johnny had been found early that morning, huddled in a doorway. He was unconscious when a cop found him. His tuxedo jacket was buttoned up over his undershirt, and the cop saw the St. Anthony's medal around his neck and called up the Catholic Hospital Ambulance. There were no marks of identification on him. Later, the cop made his report at the station house and gave a description of the unconscious man. In the routine of checking the reports, McShane came across the description. His sixth sense told him who the man was. He went to the hospital and saw it was Johnny Nolan. Johnny was still living when Katie got there. He had pneumonia, the doctor told her, and there wasn't a chance. It was merely a question of hours. Already, he was in the coma that came before death. They took Katie to him. His bed was in a long corridor-like ward. There were 50 other beds in the ward. Katie thanked McShane and said goodbye. He went away knowing that she wanted to be alone with Johnny. There was a screen connoting dying around Johnny's bed. They brought a chair for Katie and she sat there all day watching him. He was breathing harshly and there were dried tears on his face. Katie stayed there until he died. He had never opened his eyes. He had not spoken a word to his wife. It was the night when she came home. She decided not to tell the children until the morning. Let them have a night's sleep behind them, she thought. One more night of griefless sleep. She told them only that their father was in the hospital and very sick. She said no more. There was something about the way she looked that discouraged the children from asking questions. Just as dawn came, Francie woke. She looked across the narrow bedroom and saw Mama sitting next to Neely's bed and looking down into his face. Her eyes were dark underneath and she looked as though she had been sitting there all night. When she saw that Francie was awake, She told her to get up and get dressed right away. She shook Neely gently to awaken him and told him the same thing. 
she went out into the kitchen. The bedroom was gray and cold, and Francie shivered as she got into her clothes. She waited for Neely, not wanting to go out to Mama alone. Katie was sitting by the window. They came before her and stood waiting. Your father is dead, she told them. Francie stood numb. There was no feeling of surprise or grief. There was no feeling of anything. What Mama just said had no meaning. You're not to cry for him, ordered Mama. Her next words had no sense either. He's out of it now, and maybe he's luckier than we are. An orderly at the hospital was in the pay of an undertaker whom he had notified as soon as a death occurred. This wide-awake undertaker gained an advantage over his competitors in that he went after the business while the others waited for the business to come to them, or come after them. This enterprising fellow called on Katie early in the morning. Miss Nolan, he said, surreptitiously referring to the slip of paper on which the orderly had written her name and address. I sympathize with you in your great grief. I give you a thought. What has come to you has to come to all of us. What do you want? asked Katie bluntly. To be your friend, he hurried on before she could misunderstand. There are details connected with, uh, the remains, I mean. Again, a quick look at the slip. I mean, Mr. Nolan. I ask you to look on me as a friend who brings comfort at a time when, who will, well, I want you to leave everything in my hands. Katie understood. How much would you charge for a simple funeral? Now, don't you worry about costs, he hedged. I'll give him a fine funeral. There's no man I respected more than Mr. Nolan. He had never known Mr. Nolan. I'll make it my personal business to see that he gets the best there is. Don't worry about the money. I won't, because there's none to worry about. He wet his lips. Aside from the insurance money, of course. It was a question, not a statement. There's insurance, a little. Ah, he rubbed his hands together happily. There's where I can be of service. There's red tape connected with collecting insurance. Take a long time before you get the money. Now, supposing you, and understand, I'm not charging you for this. Let me take care of it. You just sign this. He whisked a paper out of his pocket, turning your policy over to me. I'll advance the money and collect on the policy. All undertakers gave this service. It was a trick to ascertain how much insurance there was. Once they knew the amount, the funeral cost 80% of it. They had to leave a little money for morning clothes to keep the people satisfied. Katie got the policy. As she put it on the table, his practice eye picked out the amount, $200.
he appeared not to have looked at the policy. After Katie had signed the paper, he talked of other things for a while. Finally, as if coming to a decision, he said, Tell you what I'll do, Miss Nolan. I'll give the departed a first-class four-coach funeral with a nickel-handle coffin for $175. That's my regular $250 job, and I'm not making a penny on it. Why are you doing it for, then? Or why are you doing it, then, for? asked Katie. He wasn't at all put out. I'm doing it because I liked Mr. Nolan, a splendid man and a hard-working man. He noticed the surprised look Katie gave him. I don't know, she hesitated. A hundred and seventy-five. That includes the mass, too, he put in hastily. All right, said Katie dully. She was tired of talking about it. The undertaker picked up the policy and pretended to see the amount for the first time. Say, this is for 200, he said in a stagey surprise. That means you got $25 coming to you after the funeral is paid. He dug into his pocket, stretching his leg out straight before him to do so. Well, I always say that a little cash comes in handy at a time like this. At any time, if you ask me, he chuckled understandingly. So I'll just advance you the balance out of my own pocket. He put $25 in new bills on the table. Katie thanked him. He wasn't fooling her, but she made no protest. She knew that was the way things were done. He was only working at his trade. He asked her to get the death certificate from the officiating doctor. And please inform them that I'll call for the, I mean, for the depart. Well, I'll come and get Mr. Nolan. When Katie went to the hospital again, she was taken to the doctor's office. The priest of the parish was there. He was trying to supply information for the making out of the death certificate. When he saw Katie, he made the sign of the cross in blessing and then shook her hand. Miss Nolan can tell you more than I can, said the priest. The doctor asked necessary questions, the full name and place of birth and date of birth and so on. Finally, Katie asked him a question. What are you writing down there? What he died from, I mean. Acute alcoholism and pneumonia. They said he died of pneumonia. That was the direct cause of death, but this acute alcoholism was a definite contributing factor, probably the main cause of death, if you wish the truth. I don't want you to write down, said Katie, slowly and steadily, that he died from drinking too much. Write that he died of pneumonia alone. Madam, I have to state the entire truth. He's dead. What can it mean to you what he died of? The law requires. Look, said Katie, I got two nice children. They're going to grow up to amount to something. It isn't their fault that their father... 
that he died from what you said. It would mean a lot to me if I could tell them that their father died of pneumonia alone. The priest took a hand in it. You can do it, doctor, he said. Without hurt to yourself and with benefit to others, don't be kicking around of a poor lad that's dead and gone. Write down pneumonia, which is no lie, and this lady will be remembering you in her prayers for a long time to come. Besides, he added practically, is no skin off your teeth. All of a sudden, the doctor recalled two things. He remembered that the priest was a member of the hospital board, and he remembered that he liked being head doctor at that particular hospital. All right, he conceded. I'll do it, but don't let it get around. It's a personal favor to you, father. He wrote down pneumonia in the blank after cause of death. And it was nowhere on record that John Nolan had died a drunkard. Katie used the $25 to buy morning clothes. She bought Neely a new black suit with long pants. It was his first long pants suit, and pride, pleasure, and grief fought in Neely's heart. For herself, Katie got a new black hat and a three-foot widow's veil, according to the custom of Brooklyn. Francie got new shoes, which she had been needing for a long time anyhow. It was decided not to buy Francie a black coat, as she was growing fast and it wouldn't fit her next winter. Mama said her old green coat would do with a black band around the arm. Francie was glad because she hated black and had worried lest her mother put her in deep mourning. The little money left over after the shopping was finished was put in the tin can bank. The undertaker came again to report that Johnny was at his funeral parlor and was being fixed up fine and would be brought home that evening. Katie told him rather, rather sharply not to give them the details. Then the blow fell. Miss Nolan, I have to have the deed to your lot. What lot? The cemetery plot. I need the deed to get the grave opened. I thought that was all in the hundred and seventy-five dollars. No, no, no. I'm giving you a bargain. The coffin alone cost me. I don't like you, said Katie in her blunt way. I don't like the business you're in. But then, she added with her amazing detachment, I suppose someone has to bury the dead. How much is a plot? Twenty dollars. Where in the world would I get? She stopped short. Francie, get the screwdriver. They pried up the tin can bank. There was $18.62 in it. It's not enough, said the undertaker, but I'll lay out the rest. He held out his hand for the money. I'll get all the money together, Katie told him, but I'll not turn over the money until I have the deed in my hand. 
He fussed and argued and finally went away saying he'd bring back the deed. Mama sent Francie over to Sissy's house to borrow two dollars. When the undertaker came back with the deed, Katie, remembering something her mother had said 14 years ago, read it slowly and carefully. She made Francie and Neely read it too. The undertaker stood first on one foot, then on the other. When all three Nolans were satisfied that the deed was in order, Katie handed over the money. Why should I want to cheat you, Miss Nolan? He asked plaintively as he put the money away carefully. Why would anyone want to cheat anybody? She said in return, but they do. The tin can bank stood in the middle of the table. It was 14 years old and its strips were battered. Do you want me to nail it back down, Mama? asked Francie. No, said Mama slowly. We don't need it anymore. You see, we own a bit of land now. She placed the folded deed on top of the clumsy star bank. Francie and Neely remained out in the kitchen all the time the coffin was in the front room. They even slept in the kitchen. They didn't want to see their father in the coffin. Katie seemed to understand and did not insist that they go in and look at their father. The house was full of flowers. The waiters' union, which had thrown Johnny out less than a week before, sent around an enormous pillow of white carnations with a purple ribbon running diagonally across it on which were the words in gold letters, Our Brother. The cops from the precinct, in memory of the capture of the murderer, sent a cross of red roses. Sergeant McShane sent a sheath of lilies. Johnny's mother, the Romleys, and some of, some of the neighbors sent flowers. There were flowers from dozens of Johnny's friends that Katie had never heard of. McGarrity, the saloon keeper, sent a wreath of artificial laurel leaves. I'd throw it in the ash can, said Evie indignantly when she read the card. No, said Katie gently. I can't blame McGarrity. Johnny didn't have to go there. Johnny owed McGarrity over $38 at the time of his death. For some reason, the saloon keeper said nothing to Katie about it. He canceled the debt silently. The flat was sickly with the combined scents of roses, lilies, and carnations. Forever after, Francie hated those flowers. But it pleased Katie to know how much people had thought of Johnny. A few moments before they were to close the coffin lid on Johnny, Katie came out to the kitchen, came out to the kitchen to the children. She put her hands on Francie's shoulders and spoke low. I heard some neighbors whispering. They said you won't look at your father because he wasn't a good father to you. He was a good father, said Francie fiercely. Yes, he was, agreed Katie. 
She waited, letting the children make their own decision. Come on, Neely, said Francie. Hand in hand, the children went in to their father. Neely looked quickly, then, afraid he would start crying, he ran out of the room. Francie stood there with her eyes on the ground, afraid to look. Finally, she lifted her eyes. She couldn't believe that Papa wasn't living. He wore his tuxedo suit, which had been cleaned and pressed. He had on a fresh dickie and collar and a carefully tied bow tie. There was a carnation in his lapel and above it, his union button. His hair was shining and golden and as curling as ever. One of the locks was out of place and had fallen down on the side of his forehead a little. His eyes were closed as though he was sleeping lightly. He looked young and handsome and well cared for. She noticed for the first time how finely arched his eyebrows were. His small mustache was trimmed and looked as debonair as ever. All the pain and grief and worry had left his face. It was smooth and boyish looking. Johnny was 34 years old when he died, but he looked younger now, like a boy just past 20. Francie looked at his hands, crossed so casually over a silver crucifix. There was a circlet of whiter skin on his third finger where he used to wear the signet ring that Katie had given him when they married. Katie had taken it off to give to Neely when he grew up. It was queer to see Papa's hands so quiet when she remembered them as always trembling. Francie noticed how narrow and sensitive looking they were with the long and tapering fingers. She stared steadily at his hands and thought she saw them move. Panic churned up in her and she wanted to run away, but the room was full of people watching her. They would say she was running away because... He had been a good father. He had. He had. She put her hand on his hair and put the lock back in place. Aunt Sissy came and put her arm around her and whispered, It's time. Francie stepped back to stand with Mama while they closed the lid. At the mass, Francie knelt on one side of Mama and Neely on the other. Francie kept her eyes on the floor so she wouldn't have to look at the flower-covered coffin standing on trestles before the altar. Once she stole a look at her mother, Katie was kneeling, staring straight ahead, her face white and quiet under the widow's veil. When the priest stepped down and walked around the coffin sprinkling holy water at the four corners of it, a woman sitting across the aisle sobbed wildly. Katie, jealous and fiercely possessive even in death, turned sharply to look at the woman who dared weep for Johnny. She looked well at the woman, then turned her head away. Her thoughts were like torn bits of paper blowing around. 
Hildy Odair is old for her age, she thought. It's like powder was sprinkled on her yellow hair, but she's not much older than me. Thirty-two or three? She was eighteen when I was seventeen. You go your way and I'll go mine. You mean you'll go her way. Hildy, Hildy. He's my feller, Katie Romilly. Hildy, Hildy. But she's my best friend. I'm not much good, Hildy. I shouldn't have led you on. You go your... Hildy, Hildy. Let her cry. Let her cry, thought Katie. Someone who loved Johnny should cry for him, and I can't cry. Let her. Katie, Johnny's mother, and Francia Neely rode out to the cemetery in the first coach behind the hearse. The children sat with their backs to the driver. Francie was glad because she couldn't see the hearse which led the procession. She saw the coach which followed. Aunt Evie and Aunt Sissy were in that one alone. Their husbands couldn't come because they were working and Grandma Mary Romilly was staying home to mind Sissy's new baby. Francie wished she was riding in the second coach. Ruthie Nolan wept and lamented during the whole of the ride. Katie sat in stony quiet. The carriage was close and smelled of damp hay and stale horse manure. The smell, the closeness, the riding backwards, and the tension gave Francie an unfamiliar feeling of sickness. At the cemetery, there was a plain wooden box standing beside a deep hole. They found the cloth-covered casket with its shiny handles into the plain box. They put the cloth-covered casket with its shiny handles into the plain box. Francie looked away when they lowered it into the grave. It was a gray day, and a chill wind was blowing. Little swirls of frozen dust eddied about Francie's feet. A short distance away, at a week-old grave, some men were stripping the withered flowers from the wire frames of the floral pieces heaped on the grave. They worked methodically, keeping the withered flowers in a neat heap and piling up the wire frames carefully. Theirs was a legitimate business. They bought this concession from the cemetery officials and sold the wired fa- wire frames to the florists who used them over and over again. No one complained because the men were very scrupulous about not tearing off the flowers until they were well withered. Someone pushed a lump of damp er- cold, damp earth into Francie's hand. She saw that Mama and Neely were standing at the edge of the grave and dropping their handful of earth into it. Francie walked slowly to the edge, closed her eyes, and opened her hand slowly. She heard a soft thud after a second, and that feeling of sickness came back again. After the burial, 
the coaches went in different directions. Each mourner was to be taken to his own home. Ruthie Nolan went off with some mourners who lived near her. She didn't even say goodbye. All during the service, she had refused to speak to Katie and the children. Aunt Sissy and Evie got into the carriage with Katie and Francie and Noli, or Neely. There wasn't room for five people, so Evie had to, <laughs> Francie had to sit on Evie's lap. They were all very quiet on the way home. Aunt Evie tried to cheer them up by telling some new stories about Uncle Willie and his horse, but no one smiled because no one listened. Mama made the coach stop at a barber shop around the corner from their house. Go in there, she told Francie, and get your father's cup. Francie didn't know what she meant. What cup? she asked. Just ask for his cup. Francie went in. There were two barbers, but no customers. One of the barbers sat on one of the chairs in a row against the wall. His left ankle rested on his right knee and he cradled a mandolin. He was playing Oh Sol Mio. Francie knew the song. Mr. Morton had taught it to them under the title Sunshine. The other barber was sitting in one of the barber chairs looking at himself in the long mirror. He got down from the chair as the girl came in. Yes? he asked. I want my father's cup. The name? John Nolan. Ah, oh, yes. Too bad. He sighed as he took a mug from the row of them on a shelf. It was a thick white mug with John Nolan written on it in gold and fancy block letters. There was a worn down cake of white soap at the bottom of it and a tired looking brush. He pried out the soap and put it in the brush in a bigger, unlettered cup. He washed Johnny's cup. While Francie waited, she looked around. She had never been inside a barber shop. It smelled of soap and clean towels and bay rum. There was a gas heater which hissed companion companionably. <laughs> companionably. <laughs> The barber had finished the song and started it over again. The thin tinkle of the mandolin made a sad sound in the warm shop. Francie sang Mr. Morton's words to the song in her mind. Oh, what's so fine, dear, as a day of sunshine. The storm is past at last. The sky is blue and clear. Everyone has a secret life, she mused. Papa never spoke about the barber shop, yet he had come here three times a week to be shaved. Fastidious Johnny had bought his own cup, emulating men who were in better circumstances. He wouldn't be shaved with lather from the common cup, not Johnny. He had come there three times a week, when he had the money, and sat in one of those chairs and looked in that mirror and talked about the barber and talked with the barber about maybe 
whether the Brooklyns had a good ball team that year, or whether the Democrats would get in as usual. Perhaps he had sung when the other barber played the mandolin. Yes, she was sure that he had sung. Singing had come easier than breathing to him. She wondered if, when he had to wait, he read the police gazette lying on that bench. The barber gave her the washed and dried cup. Johnny Nolan was a fine feller, he said. Tell the mama that I, his barber, said this. Thank you, whispered Francie gratefully. She went out closing the door on the sad sound of the mandolin. Back in the coach, she held out the cup to Katie. That's for you to have, said Mama. Neely will have Papa's signet ring. Francie looked at her father's name in gold and whispered, Thank you, gratefully, for the second time in five minutes. Johnny had been on Earth for 34 years. Less than a week ago, he had walked on those streets, and now the cup, the ring, and two unironed waiter's aprons at home were the only concrete objects left to connote that a man had once lived. There were no other physical reminders of Johnny, as he had been buried in all of the clothes he owned, with his studs and his 14-carat gold collar button. When they got home, they found that the neighbors had been in and straightened up the flat. The furniture had been put back in place in the front room, and the withered leaves and fallen flower petals swept out. The windows had been opened, and the rooms aired out. They had brought coal and made a great fire in the kitchen range and put a fresh white cloth on the table. The Tinmore girls had brought up a cake, which they had baked themselves, and it stood on a plate and was already sliced. Floss Gaddis and her mother had bought a whole lot of sliced bologna. <laughs> Excuse me sliced bologna. It took two plates to hold it. There was a basket of freshly sliced rye bread, and the coffee cups were set out on the table. There was a pot full of freshly made coffee warming on the stove, and someone had set a pitcher of real cream in the middle of the table. They had done all this while the Nolans were away. Then they had left, locked the door behind them, and put the key under the mat. Aunt Sissy, Evie, Mama, Francie, and Neely sat at the table. Aunt Evie poured out the coffee. Katie sat for a long time looking at her cup. She remembered the last time Johnny had sat at that table. She did what Johnny had done. She pushed the cup away with her arm, put her head down on the table, and cried in great, ugly, tearing sobs. Sissy put her arms around her and spoke in her gentle, caressing voice. Katie, Katie, don't cry so. Don't cry so. Else the child you'll soon be bringing into this world will be a sad child.
Chapter 37 Katie stayed in bed the day after the funeral, and Francie and Neely wandered around the flat, stunned and bewildered. Towards evening, Katie got up and made some supper for them. After they had eaten, she urged the children to go for a little walk, saying they needed the air. Francie and Neely walked up Graham Avenue towards Broadway. It was bitterly cold and a still night, but there was no snow. The streets were empty. It was three days after Christmas, and children were home playing with their new toys. The streetlights were bleak and bright. A small icy wind coming in from the sea blew close to the ground. It whirled bits of dirty papers along the gutters. They had grown out of childhood in the last few days. Christmas as Christmas had passed unnoticed since their father had died on Christmas Day. Neely's 13th birthday had been lost somewhere in those lost Neely's 13th birthday had been lost somewhere in those last few days. They came to the brilliantly lighted facade of a big vaudeville house. Since they were reading children and read everything they came across, they stopped and automatically read the list of acts playing that week. Underneath the sixth act was an announcement in large letters. Here next week, Chauncey Osborne, sweet singer of sweet songs. Don't miss him. Sweet singer, sweet singer. Francie had not shed a tear since her father's death. Neither had Neely. Now Francie felt that all the tears she had were frozen together in her throat in a solid lump and the lump was growing, growing. She felt that if the lump didn't melt soon and change back into tears, she too would die. She looked at Neely. Tears were falling out of his eyes. Then her tears came too. They turned into a dark side street and sat on the edge of the sidewalk with their feet in the gutter. Neely, though weeping, remembered to spread his handkerchief on the curb so that his new long pants wouldn't get dirty. They sat close together because they were cold and lonesome. They wept long and quietly, sitting there in the cold street. At last, when they could cry no more, they talked. Neely, why did Papa have to die? I guess God wanted him to die. Why? Maybe to punish him. Punish him for what? I don't know, said Neely miserably. Do you believe that God put Papa on this world? Yes. Then he wanted him to live, didn't he? I guess so. Then why did he make him die so quick? Maybe to punish him, repeated Neely, not knowing what else to answer. If that's true, what good is it? Papa's dead, and he don't know that he's punished. God made Papa the way he was and then said to himself, I dare you to do anything about it. I just bet he said that.
Maybe you shouldn't talk about God like that, said Neely apprehensively. They say God's so great, said Francie scornfully, and knows everything and can do everything. If he's so great, why didn't he help Papa instead of punishing him like you said? I just said maybe. If God has charge of all the world, said Francie, and the sun and the moon and the stars and all the birds and trees and flowers and all of the animals and people, you'd think he'd be too busy and too important, wouldn't you? To spend so much time punishing one man, one man like Papa? I don't think you should talk about God like that, said Neely uneasily. He might strike you down dead. Then let him, cried Francie fiercely. Let him strike me down dead right here in the gutter where I sit. They waited fearfully. Nothing happened. When Francie spoke again, she was quieter. I believe in the Lord, Jesus Christ, and his mother, Holy Mary. Jesus was a living baby once. He went barefooted like we do in the summer. I saw a picture where he was a boy and had no shoes on. And when he was a man, he went fishing like Papa did once. And they could hurt him too, like they couldn't hurt God. Jesus didn't go around punishing people. He knew about people. So I will always believe in Jesus Christ. They made the sign of the cross, as Catholics do when mentioning Jesus' name. Then she put her hand on Neely's knee and spoke in a whisper. Neely, I wouldn't tell anybody but you, but I don't believe in God anymore. I want to go home, said Neely. He was shivering. When Katie let them in, she saw that their faces were tired yet peaceful. Well, they've cried it out, she thought. Francie looked at her mother, then looked away quickly. While we were gone, she thought, she cried and cried until she couldn't cry anymore. The weeping wasn't mentioned aloud by any one of them. I thought you'd come home cold, said Mama, so I made a warm surprise for you. What? asked Neely. You'll see. The surprise was hot chocolate, which was cocoa and condensed milk made into a paste and boiling water stirred into it. Katie poured the thick, rich stuff into the cups. And that's not all, she added. She took three marshmallows from a paper bag in her apron pocket and popped one into each cup. Mama, said the children simultaneously and ecstatically. Hot chocolate was something extra special, usually reserved for birthdays. Mama is really somebody, thought Francie, as she held her marshmallow down with her spoon and watched the melting white swirls vein the dark chocolate. She knows we've been crying, but she's not asking questions about it. Mama never... Suddenly the right word about Mama came to Francie. Mama never fumbles. No, Katie never fumbled. 
When she used her beautifully shaped but worn looking hands, she used them with surety, whether it was to put a broken flower into a tumbler of water with one true gesture or to wring out a scrub cloth with one decisive motion, the right hand turning in, the left out simultaneously. When she spoke, she spoke truly with the plain right words, and her thoughts walked in a clear, uncompromising line. Mama was saying, Neely's getting too big to sleep in the same room with his sister, so I fixed the room you're... She barely hesitated over the next word. Father and I used to have. That's Neely's bedroom now. Neely's eyes jumped to his mother's. A room of his own? A dream come true. Two dreams come true. Long pants and a room. His eyes saddened then as he thought of how these good things had come to him. And I'll share your room, Francie. Instinctive tact made Katie put it that way instead of saying, you'll share my room. I wish I had my own room, thought Francie with a flare of jealousy. But it's right, I guess, that Neely have it. There are only two bedrooms and he, he couldn't sleep with Mama. Knowing Francie's thought, Katie said, and when it gets warm again, Francie can have the front room. We'll put her cot in there and put a nice cover on it in the daytime, and it will be like a private sitting room. All right, Francie? All right, Mama. After a while, Mama said, We forgot the reading the last few nights, but now we'll start again. So things will just go on just the same, thought Francie, a little surprised as she took the Bible from the mantelpiece. Being, said Mama, that we lost Christmas this year, let's skip the part we're supposed to read and go to the birth of the baby Jesus. We'll take turns reading. You start, Francie. Francie read, And so it was that, while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in the manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Katie sighed sharply. Francie stopped reading and looked up inquiringly. It's nothing, said Mama. Go on reading. No, it's nothing, Katie thought. It's the time when I should feel life. Again, the unborn child trembled faintly within her. Was it because he knew of this coming child, she wondered silently, that he stopped drinking at the last? She had whispered to him that they were to have another child. Had he tried to be different when he knew? And knowing, did he die in the trying to be a better man? Johnny, Johnny, she sighed again. And they read, each in turn, of the birth of Jesus, and reading, they thought of Johnny dying, but each kept his thoughts.
When the children were ready to go to bed, Katie did something very unusual. It was unusual because she was not a demonstrative woman. She held the children close to her and kissed them goodnight. From now on, she said, I am your mother and your father.